Good morning, Woodland Hills. My name is Dan Kent. I'm a teaching pastor here at the church. I'm also in charge of uh, hot cocoa procurement. And uh, no, I don't know. I, uh, it's, we, we, need hot, we need hot cocoa back with the coffee, I think, this time of year. That's my opinion. To be honest, I'm a little kind of uh, frazzled because, um, boy, Jerry singing that song, I Am a Child of God, it just really hit me. And, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to like reorient myself to my message. So it might take me a minute or two, but boy, that was worth the price of admission by itself. What a blessing. Thanks, Jerry. Um, well, hey, we are in a Christmas series, and it's that time of year again. And this is week two of the series. It's called Christmas Lights. And the idea behind the series is that, man, there are a lot of uh, types of darkness in the world that we have to experience. And, and, uh, and, and our hope is that the Christmas story offers light for these various types of darkness that we experience. And last week, Greg talked about the darkness of just the chaos and instability that is going on in the world right now, and how the peace of God can be leveraged against that uh, instability and chaos. This week, I want to talk about meaninglessness and just the experience of meaninglessness and futility and the feeling sometimes that we get that life just doesn't amount to anything and how the Christmas story can be uh, a light against some of those experiences. And really, the sermon that I'm going to share today is basically the philosophical background to the song that Jerry sang, I Am a, a Child of God. And, uh, and so to, to kind of get into this, I want to talk about, first of all, comic books, because you, you may not know this, but I came to Jesus ultimately through comic books. And, uh, and so I'm very grateful for comic books. And it kind of started when I was probably fifth or sixth grade. And, you know, the days kind of bleed together as you get older. But I think I was fifth grade going into sixth grade. And somehow I was up in Fridley, Minnesota. And I came upon an issue of, it's called the Fantastic Four. Uh, and it's the first comic book I'd ever seen. And I opened it up, and right away, I was like, wow, this is amazing. And I just, I loved the dynamic art all throughout. It's just beautiful. It's all colorful and dynamic, and there were explosions and uh, all sorts of amazing things happening. And the characters were so excellent in, in terms of their, their, moral, their moralness. They were just good. And I just loved how they just gave their all. They just threw themselves at their villain, you know, the enemy, the evil in the story. And they just gave it all to, to overcome the evil in their lives. And I, I, I just really liked that. And so it didn't take long for me to realize, wow, I like comic books. And I started, you know, collecting cans and bottles so that I could return them for five cents a piece. And I would buy more comic books. And eventually I really, you know, got into uh, Batman. And I just loved uh, the darkness of Batman, you know. And, uh, and I loved his kind of simple justice, <laughs> there's no nuance there. He came in, he saw a crime, and he kicked some butt. And I just, I love that. You know, just that feeling of, ha-ha, that'll show him. And, and just the, the problem was solved. It was just all nice and tidy, you know? And, uh, and plus, I'm a Kent, you know, Dan Kent. And uh, so every time a Superman movie came out, everybody would ask me the same question, are you Clark's brother? And then I always have to explain, yes, I am. <laughs> So I, I, I loved comic books, and, and I collected them for a couple years, and then my comic book game really leveled up because my mom moved us from uh, Fridley down to Egan in this apartment building right behind a strip mall, and at the end of the strip mall, I kid you not, was a comic book shop. 
And we were on the first floor of this apartment, and so I could walk out my patio, and I had a little chunk of lawn, and then there was the comic book shop. I literally get like 25 steps. I was in the comic book shop. And I would spend hours in there, and I would be you know, going through all of these wonderful stories of people with superpowers and amazing, amazing stories. And uh, Dave Johnson was the owner, really cool guy. I was in there so much, eventually he just gave me a job, and uh, I, I was making 50 cents an hour, uh, half cash, half trade. <laughs> I, I was no fool, you know. So, but I felt, I felt like the luckiest kid in the world, really. Uh, working in this comic book shop, and, and uh, I just loved it. It turns out that Dave was also a volunteer at his church's youth ministry group. And he invited me one Wednesday to go and play volleyball at the church. And so I'm like, yeah, sure, Dave's great. I'm going to go do this. And so this is a plug for volunteering for youth ministry, by the way. Uh, so I went and I played volleyball, and I had a great time. And I started going every week. It was just now part of my life. Now I play volleyball at the youth group, and it turns out I was a really good volleyball player. That helped, uh, you know, if, if, if I can say. Uh, I'm probably not as good anymore, but back then, man, I was, I was good. Uh, and then Pastor St- Steve Crane, he was the, uh, the youth pastor. Uh, he kind of introduced me to Jesus. And so now, after a few months, I had these two worlds that I was kind of growing into. I was growing into comic books and I was growing into this idea of Jesus. Very strange worlds, but I was kind of getting into both. And it's interesting because during this time, this is the late 80s, early 90s, uh, comic books also leveled up because they started to make these big budget movies about comic books. And so you had like Batman, and then you had The Incredible Hulk, and Wonder Woman, and, and these movies were just, they were amazing. Um, and that has kind of continued. I mean, now we have a new superhero movie that comes out every other month. And in fact, Barbara and I, we were, we were marveling. Like, we were trying to find a TV show or a movie that didn't have a character that had a superpower. It was really hard. Almost everything involved somebody with some special power or magical gift or something like that. And I remember thinking, you know, I want to see a movie about a guy in a world where everyone has a superpower but him. <laughs> And uh, I even have a couple names for this movie, if you don't mind me sharing. I have 10 of them, but I'm just going to share five. This is a movie about a guy in a world where everybody is a superhero except for him. Number one, the life of Dan Kent. (laughs) Number two, Fifty Shades of Kent. Number three, Tinker Tailor Imposter Syndrome. Number four, Goodfella. And number five, you've heard of Die Hard, this would be Die Easy. (laughs) All right, Uh, where was I? Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, so these movies, though, that movie probably wouldn't be very good. But the movies that are coming out now with superhero movies, they are amazing. And uh, they're just fascinating. And I stopped watching them after the Dark Knight series. I think I kind of outgrew them finally. But uh, I did happen to catch the tail end of an Avengers movie. And I don't know which one it was, but I just remember that Thor was battling Loki. And Thor and Loki, they're both like these demigod, kind of demiurge type things. And so they have like these cosmic divine powers. And so this battle is intense. And somewhere in here, Loki activates some mechanism which shoots this laser up and opens up a portal into the sky, into this parallel dimension where this swarm of hellbots just pours down onto Manhattan. And so now, while all of these hellbots are pouring down onto Manhattan, Captain America is running around with his shield trying to protect all of the common folks 
I call them normies, <laughs> trying to protect all the common folks from these hellbot attacks. And then this, uh, these chariots appear, and they're shooting these lasers on the Incredible Hulk, which just gets him mad, of course. And then the United States, the military, they respond by saying, you know what, let's just nuke the whole thing, otherwise we're doomed. So they shoot a nuclear missile. Iron Man says, no, that's not the right way to do this. So he goes and he's wrestling with this nuclear missile, and he's trying to get it up into the portal to cut the madness off at the source. And then... Well, I don't really know what happens, but I'm sure it ends in a very explosive fashion. But it's just, it's just fascinating. All of this is going on at the same time, and it's just mesmerizing. And it just struck me as strange as I'm watching this that we have these cinematic masterpieces with just like perfect special effects. I mean, it looks like it's real. Just perfect special effects. And the writers are just brilliant, and they're so good at getting us into the characters and the stories. And you see this, and you see all of the stuff that's happening in this story, and then you think of the Christmas story. <laughs> and it's just this baby in a bucket of hay in a barn, you know? And when you contrast that, it's really dull, you know? It's kind of boring. And yet we keep coming back to the Christmas story. Why is that? Why do we keep coming back to this in our modern time, when we have all of this other stuff at our disposal. Now, there's probably a lot of reasons for it, tradition and things like that, but I propose that there is a deeper reason why we keep coming back to the Christmas story. And I propose that all of our stories that we watch, the Avengers, the movies that we watch, the stories that we read, I think that there is a flaw in all of those. There's something missing in all of those stories that the Christmas story has. And it's because that thing is missing, we keep coming back to the Christmas story and the story of baby Jesus in the manger. And for me, I didn't really understand this until I had my own sort of existential crisis. And it happened shortly after I was in, uh, I just graduated high school, barely. <laughs> barely graduated high school, D minus average. I can't wait to tell you how I pulled that off because it's a great story, but I don't have time right now. But just know that I'm lucky to have graduated and I didn't deserve it. But I did. I graduated. I got this job at this Italian restaurant. I was bussing tables. And it was a good job. Uh, I liked it. And I liked having cash every day. And, but there was this time when I just got kind of in this funk. I got into this funk where I just felt like everything is so monotonous. Everything is just like one thing after another. And it's just so monotonous. And I got this sense that everything just seemed futile and meaningless. Like, why am I doing anything? And uh, I even wrote a letter to my cousin Michelle about this, and I was trying to explain to her this, this feeling that I was, have, I was having. And uh, I, I was trying to explain that, like, look, if I'm lucky enough to accomplish something, well, then what? If I achieve something, well, then what? Well, maybe I have to find another achievement or something. But it just seemed like no matter what I achieved in the world, it would go away. It just disappears. And so it doesn't have any lasting power. So I, didn't, I couldn't see anything in life worth throwing myself to like the Fantastic Four did. I didn't see anything there that really mattered like that. And, and you know, I don't know if I had a hard time putting into words what I was experiencing. And, and I probably sounded crazy in the letter. I probably was a little crazy, really, because this was a heavy feeling that I was feeling. And maybe some of you have felt this also. In fact, I think a lot of us have. Uh, Gallup did a poll 10 years ago, 2012, and they polled millions of employees to ask them about what do they think of their careers or their jobs. Out of all of these millions of employees, only 13% said that they were 
enthusiastic and committed to their work. 63% said that they sleepwalk through their workday, they don't give any extra time, they don't invest any extra energy or passion into it, and 24%, one out of four almost, said that they were actively disengaged. That is, they were trying to avoid as much contribution to their job as possible. Nowadays, we have something called quiet quitting. It's sort of a, a popular thing where, where people are, are trying to do just enough to keep their job and not get fired while also not doing anything else. I don't think that's only because of laziness. I really don't. That's probably part of it. And I'm, hey, welcome to the party. <laughs> That's me. I, I, I get it. I've had those jobs where I'm just like, I, pff, this job doesn't mean anything. I'm going to do whatever I have to do. But I think there's something bigger going on there. I really do. I think that we're waking up to something that we have been asleep to for a long time. We're waking up to the fact that our careers are not as deep and meaningful as we thought they were. I think that there is a shallowness to our jobs, while at the same time, our jobs are actually becoming more mundane and arbitrary. With automation and artificial intelligence, this is just going to get worse. Our jobs are getting more and more mundane. I don't know if you've ever done this, but every time I sit in traffic, I get this haunting feeling. Like if I'm sitting and there's all of these cars, cars as far as the eye can see, and we're all puttering along at three miles per hour, I see all of these people in their cars and I think, where are they going? There can't be this many meaningful jobs to do. <laughs> Life's not that complicated. What? So you know that most of these people are going to something that's just not that meaningful. It's just some type of mundane, arbitrary job. And, and, and so, you see, it's hard to explain. But then I came upon the story of Sisyphus. And it really connected. And I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but it's a famous story. It's a, it's a mythical story about a mythical king named Sisyphus. And this Sisyphus guy was a total jerk. The guy loved to start wars. He loved to kill. He killed for, for profit. He killed for pride. He killed just for pleasure. He just killed and killed and killed. He was just bloodthirsty. And when he finally died, the gods in this story showed him no mercy. They condemned Sisyphus for all eternity to a job. <laughs> they condemned him to pushing this rock to the top of a hill. And that's all you have to do, Sisyphus, just get this rock to the top of the hill. But the problem is, is that the rock was such, and the hill was such, that as soon as the rock got to the top, it would roll down the side, and he would have to go down and push it again. And I heard this story, and I said, yes, that's it. That's how life feels a lot of times. That was the heavy feeling that I was experiencing. It just seems like everything we do, no matter how great we think it is, ultimately it amounts to nothing. There was a writer in the 1950s named Albert Camus who probably experienced the same thing. And he wrote a book called The Myth of Sisyphus where he explored what is going on here. And he asked this question. He wondered, in a world where there is no God, could there be anything that we do that has any meaning at all? Uh, and he concluded that without God, the answer is no. Everything we do is meaningless, it's absurd, it's ridiculous. In fact, he said, anything that a person does in a, in a world without God, and these are his words, is an incomprehensible dumb show. <laughs> it's just an incomprehensible dumb show. People get so fired up about things, but why? Because nothing has any meaning in a world without God. Shakespeare, in his uh, uh, story Macbeth, Macbeth says this, humans 
are a cursed creature who strut and fret their hour upon the stage, and then they are heard of no more. Life is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Camus and Macbeth, uh, they represented what philosophers called nihilism. This idea that life without God can have no meaning. The only thing that you can do in a, in a world without God is to just find as much pleasure as you can while you can. And for me, at the time when I was reading this, I was kind of wavering on the whole God thing. And looking at Camus' consequences for living in a world without God, man, I felt that. I was feeling that so much, and it scared me. It was, uh, it's not a good feeling. But it turns out that not everybody who, uh, who is an atheist agreed with Camus. During the same time that Camus was writing, Jean-Paul Sartre, S-A-R-T-R-E, kind of like Brett Favre, uh, he's sort of the Brett Favre of philosophy, really. But Sartre, uh, he said that, no, listen, wait a minute, we, we can still have meaning even if there is no God. And he said, look, p- people have free will. People have free will, and so they can become whoever they want to become. And by deciding who you want to be and then chasing that and becoming that, that is the meaning for your life. Boy, uh, (laughs) this pathway to meaning, to become who you want to be, uh, that changed everything. Because now, when people embrace this, the source of meaning in life was no longer in God or the cosmos, but it was on you. The burden of meaning now fell on you. It's sort of a bottom-up kind of meaning that involved this kind of really radical new type of self-focus. And, and the whole idea really became contagious and it kind of took on a life of its own. This idea that I am my own and that meaning lies in my lap and the path to becoming who I want to be, that's where I find meaning. It, it spread everywhere. Uh, there's a book called uh, The Road Trip That Changed the World by Mark Sayers. And I wish I had more time to talk about this because it's a great book, but he looks at, it's a book about a book, which is kind of weird. But he writes this book about Jack Kerouac's book, On the Road. And On the Road, guess when this came out? Almost the exact same time that Camus and Sartre were writing. And his book, On the Road, is about this journey of becoming, this road trip where all of these people are trying to become who they want to become. And it just really echoes uh, what Sartre and, and uh, uh, Camus were getting at, uh, or at least what Sartre was getting at. But what's happening is, is there's something fundamental was changing in the 20th century in how we understood ourselves and how we understood the world around us. Uh, we were going now from this focus on our connectedness to each other to this new focus on our autonomy. And we went from our situatedness in our community to now looking at our own journey of self-becoming. It was just a total shift in perspective. And like I said, I wish I had more time. It's a great book. I recommend reading it. But the mantra of this new mindset really could be this. Life is a journey. That's the mantra that really kind of captured this new way of thinking. But does it work? (laughs) Uh, does it work? Is Sartre right that creating the self that I want to be gives me the meaning that I hunger for? Or is Camus right that in a world without God, meaning is just impossible? For me, as I was wrestling with this kind of existential crisis that I was having, and as brilliant as Sartre was and as exciting as the project of becoming seemed, I thought the whole project failed to give me the meaning that I hungered for. I felt like something about it was flawed. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized 
it's doomed to fail from the start. Because if meaning lies on my lap, well, what am I? I'm a human. I am inescapably temporary, and I'm inescapably finite, which means that any meaning that I can create must also be finite and temporary. Bottom-up meaning fails because I think we long for something more than finite and temporary. We long for something greater. We, we long for a top-down meaning. We're looking for a meaning. We're looking for a meant to be. That's what we are looking for. That's what will satisfy us. Bottom-up meaning can only lead to an existential cul-de-sac, is, uh, is what I would say. What I've said is that Sartre is brilliant. He really is. But he failed to create meaning. He created a whole lot of purpose, though. Becoming who you want to be, man, that's a great purpose. And purpose is good. We need purpose. Uh, And really, purpose is a kind of meaning. It's just a small, local, finite, temporary kind of meaning. Uh, And purpose, it's really great, and we need it, and God provides purpose because it's important. It just doesn't solve the deep hunger for meaning that we have. And I think I can show this. Uh, by going back to Sisyphus. If you imagine Sisyphus, this poor guy, pushing this rock up the hill. And let's say after about 200 years, uh, he's a little slow. <laughs> after about 200 years, he realizes, you know, I should be listening to audiobooks while I do this. And so he starts listening to audiobooks, and he just happens to start listening to Sartre. And Sartre is telling him, you know, life could have meaning even in your situation. And boy, Sisyphus is like, that's great because this feels meaningless. And so Sartre tells him, all you have to do is you have to decide who you want to be and then set your mind to becoming that. And now your life will have meaning. And so Sisyphus says, that's a good idea. You know, I've always wanted to be a yodeler. And uh, so he starts listening to audiobooks about yodeling and he's practicing yodeling as he's pushing this rock up. And after about 100 years, he does it. He becomes the greatest yodeler who has ever existed in the entire universe. He is a master yodeler after a hundred years. And his yodeling is so beautiful that birds flock to him when he yodels. And the worms of the earth, they weep at the beauty of his yodeling. He's just, that's how good of a yodeler he is. And he's pushing this rock and he's yodeling away. And then the rock rolls down the other side and Sisyphus is still in the same meaningless situation he has always been in. It's just that now he yodels a little bit better. Purpose is not meaning. Sisyphus gained a lot of purpose in that and probably a great distraction for a long time, but it all happened still within this life that was meaningless. This whole idea that life is a journey, this mindset, it can give you purpose, but not meaning. It can distract you, but it cannot fulfill you. And I think that people are starting to realize this. I think that people are starting to realize, you see this especially after they accomplish something great. If they win the Super Bowl, or if they sell a script to Hollywood, or they, maybe they just win the lottery or something like that. They, you have like these things, they're called success hangovers, where people get depressed after a major accomplishment. And part of the reason for that, I think, is because the accomplishment doesn't fulfill us like we think it will. It, there, it, there's still this unmet need for meaning that remains. Purpose is not meaning. We need something more. We have lots of purpose. In fact, the Avengers movies, that's all that is. It's just loud, explosive purpose. All of these people are demonstrating their great purpose and we're happy for them, but there's no ultimate meaning there. In fact, I think, you know, people like me, myself, I love this 
journey mindset. I mean, there's something about it that's very right. It's just, it just doesn't meet the needs that, that we have. Um, in fact, the problem, I think, is this. Journey is great, but you have to have a destination. You have to have a destination. But that's the very thing that this mindset tends to reject. And you've probably seen this on bumper stickers or on cars or whatever. It's not about the destination. It's about the journey. (laughs) Now, if you're in a world without God, it has to be about the journey. Because there is no destination. You see that? If you believe that there's no God, saying that it's not about the destination is an admission that there is no destination. There is only journey. And that's sad. But for me, in my existential crisis, I needed more than a journey. And this, for me, is where the Christmas story really, really came to life for me. Because yes, life is a journey, but we need that destination to make the journey meaningful. In order for the journey to have any meaning at all, there has to be a meaningful destination. Otherwise, our journey just turns out to be a sad, loud treadmill that doesn't go anywhere. That's not meaningful. Who cares if life is a journey if it's just a treadmill in your basement? (laughs) Where are you going? I don't know, but I'm going. It it, it doesn't really mean anything. And that's, I think, why we keep coming back to the Christmas story. Because the birth of Jesus is the inbreaking of ultimate meaning. That's what the story is. The little baby in the manger, that little thing in the bucket of hay in the manger, that is the timeless, infinite God who becomes one of us and then embarks on his own profound journey of love, suffering, and ultimately self-sacrifice. And he does all of that just to invite you and me, yes, into salvation for sure, but also into this destination. To this ultimate destination, I think, that truly gives our hearts what they long for. And I'm not talking about heaven here. You know, because who knows about heaven? The Bible doesn't really say a lot about heaven. I think the destination that God is revealing here is something more basic than heaven, and it's something, I think, more profound than heaven. If you look at Acts 17, verse 27, it says this. God did this, that is, created humans as we are. God did this so that they would seek God and perhaps reach out for him. In other words, God intended us to seek God. Him, and God intended us to find God. And since that's God's intention, that's what we are meant for. In other words, seeking God and finding God is our meant to be. Seeking God and finding God, that is the meant to be that can give meaning to all of our little purposes. Look at Revelation 21, 3 and 4. The angel says to John, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people And God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. The key here is God's presence. He will dwell with them. The specific details of the place, whether or not we can play volleyball there, whether or not there's going to be cars or peanut (laughs) M&Ms, none of that stuff really matters. In fact, if you don't, hunger for God's presence yet, then it doesn't really matter what you think about the place. Because most likely, the place that you imagine is just going to be a fancier version of the same treadmill that you're on down here. The meaning is God's presence and being in God's glorious presence and his infinite goodness. That, I think, is the meaning that we long for. 
This journey of self-becoming, as great as it is in terms of creating purpose, ultimately it's a dead end. It, ultimately, it is a cul-de-sac. And I really think that people are starting to wake up to this. Uh, academics, there are academics who think about meaning. And uh, they're talking about what's happening right now is that we're experiencing what's called a meaning crisis, where there is just a lot of meaninglessness, and people are experiencing life as meaningless, more than they ever have in America, at least. And so they talk about, well, what do we do about this? How do we contrive meaning for people? And, uh, and, and they're, they're doing their best. And what they've come up with, and sort of the best thing that they've put forward as a way to have meaning is this idea of transcendence. That's what people want, is they want transcendence. That's, that's, that'll give them meaning if they can go beyond themselves somehow. And so meaning, they say, is really just a word that we use to describe this longing that we have to go beyond normal physical parameters. That's what, that's what meaning is. So a lot of these thinkers will propose, hey, you know, we should use things like psychedelics, like acid and mushrooms, to create these inner experiences that are transcendent, these transcendent experiences. And it's weird, you know, going inward and finding out who I want to be, that was the first attempt at creating meaning. Well, that didn't work. And so now we're trying to get outside of ourselves. That's where meaning is. And it's just so fascinating to me that the Christmas story tells us about a God who already is transcendent, who comes down to earth to be one of us, just a normal person. Even though he's already transcendent, he decides, no, I'm going to become a normal person just to be with us as we are, not as transcendent or anything like that. And this is really, I think, what superhero movies are. Superhero movies are just about this dream of being better than human. And God, in the Christmas story, says, you know what? Being human is good enough. Being human is good enough, and he becomes human. Transcendence is not the answer that we're looking for. God comes to us as a normal person, and he invites us to put the burden of meaning on his shoulders. He invites us to reroute our journeys to his destination. And I think the more we live into this Christmas story, the more that we understand that there really is only one destination that can satisfy this hunger for meaning that we have. And I just, I f I'm fascinated reading the story because you look at the wise men and how far they journeyed just to get a glimpse and to share a gift with baby Jesus. And you look at Anna in Luke, I think it's Luke 2, and Luke tells us that Anna's husband died when she was still very young. And Anna spent 84 years in the temple courts waiting for the Messiah, who happens to be the promised destination is what the Messiah is. The Messiah is the promised destination that would make everything meaningful, including Anna's great loss and grief. And, and she realized that everything else is meaningless compared to this to such a degree that she spent 84 years waiting for the destination. And then you've got Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus the tax collector, who, you know, as a tax collector, the people hated him. And Jesus came and he wanted to see Jesus, but he was afraid of the crowds because they would hurt him. And so Zacchaeus went on ahead and he climbed a tree just to catch a peek at Jesus as he passed. That hunger, I think, the more I've thought about it, I think that those people saw what I was beginning to see in my own existential crisis. And that is this. In the manger... God flips Camus' script. In other words, the extent to which Camus thought that life without God just sagged with futility and meaninglessness, 
That's the same extent to which life with God must burst with joy and meaning and purpose. Or another way of saying this is that if Camus is right about the relationship between meaning and God, and if he's right that life without God has to lead to utter meaninglessness, and if he's right that life without God must lead to just pointless hollowness in life, and that everything we do without God is just a big dumb show, if he's right about all that, which I think he is, then what if he's wrong about God's existence? What if God exists? Doesn't that mean that the opposite of what Camus says must also be true? I think so. I think it does. So if God exists, then life must have baked into it, whether we believe it or not, because it has nothing to do with us. The meaning doesn't come from us. It comes from out there. It's a meant to be. It's a top-down meaning. And so if God exists, life must drip with meaning. And it has to just overflow with purpose. Every moment must have importance. And everything we do, everything we do has to be enormous in its importance because it gets us closer or farther away from our destination. And in a world with God, everybody matters and everybody is important. And I think that is the destination to our journey that can give us the meaning. It's the destination that God calls us to. It's the destination, it's the same destination that God went on his own journey of grueling personal suffering just to invite us into it. And it's a journey that starts right here in the Christmas story in the manger. The Christmas story this year, I would like you to think about it. I would like you to think about your story in particular. Uh, I love how the Bible itself is a story, but it's made up of a lot of littler stories. And even the body of Christ, we celebrate the story of Jesus, but it's made up of all of these stories of all the brothers and sisters that make it up. And really, faith itself is this story about God, this big story about God, and God invites us to kind of uh, join our stories into his. And I think the reason for that is that story is just really, really important. We process everything in life through story. We process how we understand ourselves. We process how we understand what happened in our lives. We process where we think we're going in the future. We narrate ourselves all the time. And so the stories we tell ourselves are so important. And so that's why the Bible talks a great deal about testimony. And testimony is really just telling your story. And and Jesus, when he heals people, a lot of times he would tell them, go and tell everyone what God has done for you. That is, this better be part of your story now that I've done this. Revelation 12, 11, the angel makes this bold claim that Satan is defeated ultimately by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. The story has cosmic implications, the stories that we tell. It's kind of what I've tried to do in this sermon. I've tried to give a testimony of how the Christmas story and how Jesus has provided meaning for me when I was experiencing a sense of profound meaninglessness. It doesn't have to be like a big deal. You don't have to shout this on the street corner or anything like that. Well, if you want to, you could do that, I guess, but it's not for me. But it should be part of your story. It should at least be part of the, the narration that you tell yourself about your life and who you are and where you're going. And I hope it's also part of what you tell people in your life that you love and people that you have relationships with. 
It's just so cool that the Christmas story initiates, I think, this ultimate destination. It's, in my mind, the birth of Jesus in the manger is sort of like the big bang of ultimate meaning. And that's why I think we keep coming back to it. And so this Christmas, ask yourself, what does the Christmas story mean to me? And how has it shaped my life? Ask yourself that. And if it hasn't shaped your life much yet, that's okay. But start thinking about it because I think that God has been shaping your life. And I think that God has been there. And maybe we just need to kind of start looking for it. But definitely start to dream about how this destination and how this promise of God might shape where your journey goes in the future. It's so important because the meaning of Christmas is really the meaning of life. It really is the ultimate meaning of life. And the more we orient our own stories into the story of Christmas and into the story of Jesus, I think the more deeply meaningful our stories become and also the more meaningful our lives become. Uh, I was telling Christy before the sermon that this has been a sermon that's kind of been 40 years in the making uh, since I started collecting comics and... uh, and because of that, I had about 70% of it I had to cut out. And so the Muse cast on Tuesday is going to be four and a half hours long. And uh, no, I, I'm just kidding. I hope you join us for the Muse cast on Tuesday. Also, if uh, you uh, need prayer, we have a couple prayer options. You can come forward and pray here with people, or you can pray online. And we also have gathering groups that you can find out about. And just go to uh, whchurch.org bulletin. You can find out all that stuff there. Thank you so much for uh, your attention and uh, have a blessed Christmas and uh, think about the Christmas story, but think about it through the lens of your own story. Uh, And uh, you are a blessing to me and thank you very much.